Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Hi, this is Bill. I thought this interview was so good, I wanted you to hear it again. So enjoy. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for joining me today. I am so looking forward to talking to my friend, Dr. Mark Muska. We call this segment Ask the Professor. So I bet you've got questions, uh, something you've been thinking about, maybe something you heard at church on Sunday or was in a Bible study and you had this discussion, you found it interesting and you didn't have any understanding or you would like some more clarification on something that you read in God's Word. Now is the time to ask. You can send your questions over to 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. Mark is a uh, theology professor that he was here at the University of Northwestern for decades, and now he is calling himself retired, but I'm not so sure that's the case. Mark, welcome. Hey, hi, Bill. Good to see you. Hey. I mean, good to hear you. Yeah, yeah. How are you? I'm doing okay. Okay, good, good. So I got a whole bunch of questions. Uh, I have okay. like seven prepared, and right now I can't find them, so I'm going to be looking for them. But one of the ones that was on the list is when people say, uh, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. In my opinion, when they're saying that, they they don't want to necessarily be tied to any particular doctrine or belief system. And they don't want to be labeled in such a way. They want to be given lots of slack. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's uh, I I take that positively. Uh, We are spiritual beings as human beings. Uh, whatever you want to call it, that is more than physical or material. We've got bodies. We're physical. And we use them. We use our five senses to perceive things and that. Uh, but uh, it doesn't take a genius to figure out we're more than physical. It's very difficult to deny that uh, we have a spiritual side to us. And we call that a lot of different things, our heart, our soul, our spirit. And so there's plenty of people out there that will recognize that they are uh, spiritual beings. And I kind of applaud that. That's a step in the right direction to realize that. And then uh, I think you're correct, though. This can be used as a dodge or a way to fight you off from uh, talking to them about any particular religion if they want to do that. Uh, The the, the term religion, Bill, has just kind of gotten smeared in the last few decades that people say it with a scowl on their face now. And in fact, there's a lot of Christians that will say, well, I, you know, Christianity isn't a religion, it's a relationship with Christ. And there's an element of truth to that. But technically speaking, Christianity is a religion. Uh, The word is used in the New Testament for Christianity. It's, It's a religion. So I don't think we have to feel like we're allergic to the word and we're going to break out with hives or something like that if we get too close to it. So uh, there's nothing wrong with that. But most people, I would guess, Bill, you tell me, uh, if they say something like that, they're probably referring to things like uh, institutionalized religion. They probably are. Mm -hmm. Formalized, whether it be Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, Islam, you name it. And so, the, and it seems especially if my perception is right, and I've been listening to this, uh, that the, the spiritual thing, it kind of individualizes it then. 
where I can say I'm a spiritual being and I'm in touch with God myself, but you really can't interfere with that if, with, for me. That's just between me and this cosmic force that mm-hmm. I am in touch with. And so uh, I don't know if they'd uh, admit to praying to this cosmic essence, <laughs> but mm-hmm. just kind of being connected some some thing that uh, uh, is a very subjective, a feeling or a sense of God's presence being it very clear. And we got to be careful about that, too, because there's plenty of Christian testimonials to that, that they have had a sense of God being present in a very real way, especially when they've faced obstacles or difficulties that God has reassured them through Christ that he is near them. And so uh, I don't want to, you know, diminish that. That idea completely, but if it's only subjective, it's only some feeling thing, uh, it, it only goes so far. It's pretty limited. Mm-hmm. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest. If you'd like to ask him a question, 877-933-2484. Mark, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 20, Paul says that Jesus reconciles all things to himself, both in heaven and on earth. Yeah. What does it mean for Jesus to reconcile all things in heaven? That is a good question. Okay. And in fact, Colossians gets into this talking about these uh, spiritual forces in the heavenly places, uh, principalities and rulers. There's a lot of that in the first couple chapters of Colossians. And so uh, I put this in the category of things, Bill, that are going on, but that we have very little access to. If uh, Jesus didn't give a hint here and there and the and the Bible give us a hint, uh, we would have no idea uh, about these things, uh, that uh, they, uh, they, they aren't perceivable through our senses in the material world. But uh, we have plenty of places in the Bible that describe these uh these conflicts between the forces of evil, uh, forces of darkness, and then the forces of life, uh, light, and uh, God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so uh, he is the one that uh, rules over all of this. And that's what Paul got into earlier in chapter 1 there. He's describing how, uh, wow, I mean, I'll just read some of this. Verse 15, that he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And so it goes on from there. Uh, this is, uh, I, my mouth just kind of drops open, Bill, when I read that to say there is so much more going on that we don't have the ability to perceive through our five senses. Mm-hmm. Let's see. Um, just going through some questions here. Uh, it seems like in scripture, women uh, are referred to as virgins, but men aren't. How come? Do they not have the same purity standards? I don't, I don't know if I can relate to that as exactly with virgins. Uh, the, uh, the idea is uh, for uh, New Testament draws the line, uh, indiscriminately for both men and women, of uh, sexual purity and uh, sexual abstention until marriage. And uh, I don't think we have to go very far for that. And as far as the label is concerned, uh, this is, uh, it, 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 the idea means virgin. It also means a, a, a young woman of marriageable age, that she's not just a kid 
you know, four years old or six years old, something like that. But she's old enough to marry, but yet she isn't married. And so the word is, is used for uh, that that kind of a young woman that yet has yet to be married. Uh, I'd have to think about that as far as any comparable term that would be used for men, that they would be uh, inexperienced sexually, however you want to say that. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure uh, if we could point to anything specific for that. Okay. So, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood... Yep. That's what is that Galatians? Well, Ephesians. Ephesians. That's what I meant. Yeah, yeah. Ephesians. Um, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers. Right. So, uh, how do we differentiate between those three? That's a good question. It might be he's using three different terms to describe the same kinds of forces in the spiritual domain. Uh, that's what I was thinking of in Colossians 1. It, uh, that's what Jesus is. Uh, he's reconciling all those things in heaven and on earth, and it includes these principalities, powers. Uh, I'm, I'll just list them here. In Ephesians 6, uh, 12, Paul says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. So it's not just a material thing, but against the rulers, powers, world forces of this darkness against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So uh, there's, uh, that's, I think it really is redundant to describe this, this uh, gathering of the forces of evil against us. And it is in the spirit domain. We would say this is an angelic thing and a demonic thing going on because he's saying explicitly here, it's not an issue of flesh and blood. This is not some human thing going on here. It's a it's a spiritual domain kind of an issue. Mm-hmm. All right. Can you explain the difference between the use of the term son of God and son of man in the Bible? I've yeah. seen the use of the term sons of God used in the Old Testament, and I have seen Jesus refer to the son of man in the New Testament. Yeah. All those terms have great significance to them. Uh, I'll just go right down the line here. The the idea of the Son of God, uh, this, I think, in Sunday school, people learn this very early on, that this is a term to describe Jesus himself, that he is the eternal Son, the second person in the Trinity, and it's a claim of his divinity, that he is fully God. We can go back to Colossians if you want to again, where Paul describes how the very essence of Deity dwells in Jesus in bodily form. He just doesn't have divine attributes. He is God. He has all the attributes of God because he is God, the Son. So Son of God, very special. But then you get into the Old Testament, and the Son of God was a designation that was used uh, for uh, uh, kings, that they were uh, considered the sons of the gods in many of the nations surrounding Israel. And so this idea of the king being the son is is uh, uh, a royal title for uh, these people. And so, uh, uh, for example, I'm paging over to it right now, but one of uh, the most awesome psalms for this is right at the beginning of the book of Psalms in Psalms chapter 2 that this term is used about the sun. This is a psalm that was sung when the king was crowned in Israel. It was a coronation psalm. And uh, 
the uh, the psalm goes out, it starts out saying, why are the nations in an uproar? The, pe- the peoples devise a vain thing. The kings of the earth take their stand against, and the rulers counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And that's, uh, that's significant there. And so we, we go here now, he says, the, the, that God, he in the heaven laughs, he scoffs at them, and he speaks to them in his anger. He says, I have, in, I have installed my king, and this is described as his son. Uh, the son of God is, it's a, therefore, a royal kind of a title as well. So is that enough with that one, son of God? Yeah, that's good. I appreciate that. Let me take a little break. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest, and when we come back, We've got time, lots of time for your questions. Send them over via text, 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. We'll be right back with Dr. Mark Muska. Hi, this is Bill. I thought this interview was so good, I wanted you to hear it again. So enjoy. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest for Ask the Professor. Send me your questions, 877-933-2484. All right, Mark, let's go to the Old Testament, the second uh, book of Kings, chapter 4. I want to ask you a question about Elisha and the Shunammite woman. So... There's a conversation that she has no son and her husband is old. And Elisha said, call her. So he called her and she stood in the doorway. About this time next year, Elisha said, you will hold a son in your arms. No, my Lord, she objected. Please, man of God, don't mislead your servant. But the woman became pregnant. And the next year, about the same time, she gave birth to a son. What went on there? Sounds like she got pregnant and had a son. <laughs> I went through all that for that answer. I don't know. I mean, that that seems to be pretty straightforward. It does. It, it does. It seems like one of those passages, though, where, you know, and then the next thing you knew, a year later, she was holding a baby. Yes. And, um, I, you know, obviously she's got an issue uh, with age, and we're not really told much. And I suppose I have heard in the past that the prophet had something to do with helping her get pregnant, not sexually, but divinely. Is there any warrant or truth to that? Almost like the way Gabriel would visit Mary. Yeah, it's 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 possible. Okay. But we just don't get this uh, idea here. The idea of somebody being old and getting pregnant, uh, they can just think about Sarah there with right. Abraham. So uh, that's not beyond God's ability to overcome uh, that uh, natural uh, diminishment of uh, fertility for the woman. So that I think it's pretty cool here that he's able to uh, he's able to say this, and obviously God is giving him the insight here to be able to tell her this with confidence. All right. Um, can you ask Professor Muska his thoughts on what Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 to 11 mean, commonly called the three angels' messages? Hmm. Well, let me get over there. Let's read them first. Right towards the end of the book, the yeah. Revelations. I don't know if you need that help i'm Thanks. willing to offer it yeah well this is where there is, uh, are these visions that john is uh, receiving here and uh, it's uh, this section of the 
of the book of Revelation has a lot of symbolism in it, and it seems to be terrifying in many ways because there's a demonic presence, uh, the great dragon, Satan, and then the man of lawlessness that comes from him, that the beast that comes out of the sea. And then in chapter 14, let, let's just read the, the uh, uh, verses here where at the beginning of the chapter, it says that uh, John, he says, I looked and behold, the lamb was standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 that were having his name and the name of the Father written on their foreheads. And so it talks about them here for a few verses. But then in verse 6, it says, And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and sea and springs of water. Another angel, a second one, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Verse 9, Then another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And awful verse, verse 11, And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. So, yeah, these three angels, uh, quite a message going on here that they are uh, uh, delivering here, uh, that uh, the first angel is delivering something that is uh, positive here, the glory of God and, and the challenge to fear him and uh, to put their faith in the gospel. But then these uh, next two terrible judgment that's going to come during this time. So uh, what what do you think the question was from this, Bill? Um, I have I have moved on to the next question. Oh. So I'm sorry, Mark, that I'm not a, a, a good participant at that's the end okay. of this question. Well, you've got to juggle a lot, so that's okay. Yeah, I've got uh, all these text messages coming in, and I, I, I have lost uh, track of that question, so I apologize. Yeah. I can just say that this is uh, speaking about the end times here, the times before uh, Christ returns. Mm -hmm. And uh, the book of Revelation is so widely interpreted, Bill. There are some really godly people that disagree completely on uh, interpreting this. Uh, There's one school of thought that will say this is uh, figurative and it's talking about the conditions on the earth in symbolic, allegorical kinds of language with these angels going with this loud voice and saying these things. Uh, others, uh, wonderful godly Christians will say uh, there's going to be something really close to this that happens historically when the end draws near. And uh, this whole thing of the mark of the beast, this is where we get this about uh, 666 mm-hmm. the number in Revelation 13 that people uh, will have their hand and their forehead stamped and they won't be able to buy or sell 
uh, without this uh, th- uh, this sign of the beast. But if they get this sign, uh, they uh, they are doomed. They are to resist getting this at all costs. So, uh, is that literal? Is that allegorical? We could talk all afternoon about that and not even scratch the surface. Mm-hmm. So I, I apologize. I did my, That's okay. my no, my internet uh, froze up and my screen went blank. Kaput, huh? Yeah, so, yeah, I got a little bit panicked there for a minute. <laughs> That's okay. Yeah. Um, all right. Can you, at the time of the Exodus, did the Egyptians and Hebrews speak the same language, or were there two separate languages? Uh, that, boy, I'm not a linguist. I don't have the expertise on that. And so there, there is uh, definitely uh, a difference in languages there. But you have to remember, some of these languages were uh, derivatives from a more common language. I can say that, that Hebrew was a language that was restricted to the people of Israel. But then uh, Aramaic was a larger, uh, it had a larger span in the Mideast east other than just uh, Israel, but Aramaic, Hebrew was a derivative of Aramaic. And so I'm not sure if that uh, carried over to Egypt at all, though I don't think it did. But I couldn't be sure. That would be something for uh, a languages expert to to f- figure out for us. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that. There, I'm going to ask you to put on your, uh, your pastoral um, cap right now this listener is talking about the unforgivable sin in my past i had a dark time of partying and drinking since then have been awakened but i've worried i've blasphemed the holy spirit in my thoughts back in those earlier days yeah so would you give some counsel as to that situation yeah you know bill this is not all that unusual that uh people uh, they read uh, the, the place that we get this from is in matthew chapter 12 where uh, jesus is going and making his claims clear of who he is. And uh, in chapter 12, uh, I can start it in verse 22. It says, a demon-possessed man, a demonized man was blind and could not speak. He was brought to Jesus, and Jesus healed him. So that the, the person who could not speak spoke, and he saw. And when that happened, that, it was like the earth shook. The people were really impressed, and they're really close to believing in Jesus. The next verse says, all the crowds were amazed and were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? Yeah, he is. Mm-hmm. He's he's the one. That's that's where the gospel wants them to go to. So the, those who opposed Jesus at that point, the Pharisees there, uh, they weren't going to live with that. And so in verse 24, it says, the Pharisees heard this. They said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. And that was crossing a line. And Jesus describes that as this blasphemy of the spirit. First of all, he tells these Pharisees, that's just stupid. Uh, Satan fights God. He doesn't fight Satan. If mm-hmm. Satan fights Satan, he's toast. You know, he's, he's yeah. not, he's not going to make it. But then Jesus warns them and he says that, uh, uh, verse 31, he says, therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the spirit shall not be forgiven. All right, Mark, we need to take a break. We'll come back, maybe do a little cleanup on that when we get back. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest. Ask the professor. Send your questions over 877-933-2484. 
Hi, this is Bill. I thought this interview was so good, I wanted you to hear it again. So enjoy. Welcome to the show. So glad to have Dr. Mark Muska as my guest. Not only is he a brainiac, but he's a friend, and I love him, and I love his passion for God's Word. You will see it in all of his answers. If you have a question, send it over, 877-933-2484. Mark, what does it mean to work out your salvation with fear and trembling? I think it means you do you do that seriously. You take it seriously when we are given commands by God. It's implied that we are expected to obey them if we follow Jesus as our Lord. Our Lord means that we serve him and we seek to obey him. Uh, that uh, that takes a, uh, a commitment on our part mm-hmm. to uh, follow him and to obey him and to work that out. Uh, that comes in uh, the book of Colossians, and I like the verse right after that. In Colossians 2, Paul says that in uh, verse, uh, oh, I can't find it just right off here. I'm paging over. Uh, mm. But anyway, right after that, he says that God is the one who is working in you to to please himself with what what you're doing there. Uh, I'm sorry, it's in Philippians 2. I want to find this, Bill, just a second. Yeah, Philippians 2.12, it says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So we have to take that serious to obey God. Mm-hmm. But then 13, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So God is the one who is working out your salvation. I like to say to people, the, there's, a, there's a cooperative effort going on here between us and God, that we obey God and commit ourselves to do that as if everything depended on us. But then we also trust God to work powerfully in us through his Holy Spirit to uh, to help us to follow Christ as if everything uh, everything was up to God to do that. Mm-hmm. That sounds contradictory, but we're doing both there. Yeah, I like that. When, when we mature in Christ. Mm-hmm. So was Adam's sin the first sin or was Satan one ahead of him? Well, Adam's sin was the first human sin. Okay. But then we have uh, indications that uh, this there was uh, rebellion that took place against God before that. Uh, otherwise, it's hard to account for the serpent that is tempting Eve mm-hmm. in Genesis 3 there. And so where did that come from? And uh, that's a little trickier to uh, track down. Uh, a couple of passages, I don't think we have enough time to really read them and go through them, but a couple of passages that will help people to uh, possibly see where Satan sinned and rebelled against God and caused this uh, rebellion among many of the angels. Uh, there is prophecy in the book of Isaiah, chapter 14, it talks about this happening where uh, this this being, this angel, sought to climb the mountain of God, and he would become like God, and uh, he was cast down from this mountain. So Isaiah 14 is a good passage for that. And then there's a comparable one in Ezekiel 28, 
where it talks about this covering cherub who had pride in his heart, and so he was cast down. Now, you got to be careful with prophecy. There's a lot of figurative language that might be figuratively talking about some kings on the earth and what's going on, but it may be describing this fall of Satan as well, that he uh, uh, he rebelled against God, and that's where the first uh, sin took place. Mm-hmm. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest. If you have a question, send it over, 877-933-2484. Mark, when you read the New Testament and you see Jesus interacting with people, he seems always so compassionate and loving all the time. That's who he is, right? Uh, not all the time, but yeah. Well, I mean, he is willing to be confrontational and call out hypocrisy and all that. Mm-hmm. Seems that at times when he's with the 12, he seems like he's he can be a little tougher. Oh, yes. They're his students. <laughs> okay, that. yeah, good, good. So say a little disciple. bit more about that. I mean, the, he's yeah. tougher with the team, right? The word disciple means student. These guys were following Jesus. They were apprentices, so to speak, for ministry. And so uh, sometimes they needed to be reprimanded when they weren't believing or uh, fighting amongst each other. Uh, uh, they uh, they were uh, ordinary human adult men, and uh, you get 12 of them together like that, you're going <laughs> to probably have some issues from time to time. And so uh, Jesus, uh, this, is, this is this false idea we get of love and kindness and tenderness, that it's always affirming and always encouraging. Sometimes the best love out there, Bill, is to tell somebody something that they need to hear, uh, it, but it's not really pleasant. I think you've probably got friends like this. I think God for the friends I have that care enough about me to tell me what I need to hear sometimes, even though it stings, because they 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 love me. And so uh, Jesus, he loved these guys. He was not just going to let them wander off. He he reprimanded them when when they needed it. Mm-hmm. In Matthew chapter nine, Mark verses twelve and thirteen. Matthew nine, twelve and thirteen. What does Jesus mean when he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice? Oh, that's that's uh, the idea that the sacrifices were, were attached to the law. And uh, this, uh, I'm, I'm looking at the uh, passage here, Matthew 9, verses 12 and 13. It says, when Jesus heard this, one of the Pharisees said, about the uh, uh, to the disciples, they said, "Why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners?" That uh, the the idea of the law and following the law it was the guide for Israel. We can't diminish that. It was very important for them. That was the way that they understood their relationship to God was to abide by the law and keep it. And Jesus, though, is reaching for something much higher than that mm-hmm. when he says that I am. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous but sinners, people who think that they're keeping the law and and therefore uh, become self-righteous. Uh, he's He's got a whole different program that he's introducing here to realize uh, the more you live and you learn about yourself, the more corrupt you realize you are and in need of compassion. Compassion is pretty much uh, mercy or compassion means that you receive something that you didn't uh, deserve to receive, namely forgiveness, even Mm -hmm. though you sure didn't earn it yourself. Yeah. Mark, the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the Mm 4,000, they make a point of talking about leftovers. There were like, what, 12 baskets in the feeding of the 5,000 and I think like seven baskets after the feeding of the 4,000. Is there a particular meaning for talking about leftovers? 
I think it's just proof here to say that this is one whopping miracle. You know? It's <laughs> okay. not like, you know, the moms got some of this bread passed down to them and they just took a little nibble off the edge so their kids could have some of the bread. Uh, they ate and were satisfied by this. And yet there were all these leftovers that were uh, that came back as a result of it. Mm-hmm. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest. If you have a question, please let me know what it is for you. 877-933-2484. Um, hey, Bill, I got to ask you something. I got a couple questions we didn't finish. Are we going to go back to those? Oh, of course. I'm sorry. Which question? Well, I, I tracked down a couple of the passages. Remember when uh, the labels were used about the Son of God, yes. the Son of Man, yes. and then the Sons of God? Yes. Uh, I didn't get a chance to finish that. Jesus is labeled the Son of God. That's a, a divine uh, a label for him. But this Son of Man thing, a lot of people don't realize that is one whopper of a title for Jesus to claim for himself. And you have to go back to Daniel chapter 7 for this where uh, Daniel is writing about these visions that he's having. And let me just read this to you. When Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, that must have burned the ears on his opponents and the Pharisees and that, because he's claiming to be this Son of Man from Daniel 7. It's Daniel 7, uh, verse 13. It says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And in him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Can you get the idea from that? Wow. Yeah. When wow. he claims that, it must have fried their ears to hear that. <laughs> he's, he's making this claim to be the son of man from Daniel 7. And then the last one was this idea of the sons of God. This is a title that's used for these spiritual forces again, Bill, that we've been talking about, you know, the principalities and powers. Uh-huh. Uh, for example, if you uh, look, one of the illustrations I looked up is in Job 38, when God is rebuking Job. At the end of the book, listen to what he says. He's in essence, he's saying, where were you, Job, when I created the earth? I can see Job being the amazing shrinking man at this time. He's he's getting rebuked by God. But I love what he says here. He says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Uh, Job 38, 4 set its measurements since uh, who set its measurements since, you know, or who stretched the line of it? He's being sarcastic with Job. But listen to this. Or what were its ba- what were his bases sunk, or what land its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? So that seems to be an angelic reference there to these uh, spiritual beings that are called sons of God, and this isn't the only place in the Old Testament that that's used. So uh, we we have to uh, sort all that out to get that straight. Okay, so I, I feel better. I, I we didn't uh, finish that question with the with that person. So thank you for bringing it back to our attention. I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, John chapter 4, verse 21 says, Believe me, woman, the time is coming when you Samaritans will worship the Father neither here at this mountain nor there in Jerusalem. Yep. And the question is, uh, where will we be worshiping in the future? Or maybe Jesus is meaning that the location is not important. Yeah, that, that's the second one. Because if you just keep reading, 
that Jesus goes on from there. He says, right now, if you want to seek God's presence, to be able to make petitions and to worship him, if you're a Jew, you go to Jerusalem. You go to Samaria if you're a Samaritan. But listen to what he says right after that. He gets done uh, saying that, and uh, let's see here. He says, uh, I'm turning over in my Bible here. And he says in verse 23 of John 4, But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his His uh, worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. It's a whole new era mm-hmm. that's starting. And now we worship God wherever we're at. We don't need to go into some church or on some mountain someplace. Uh, the Holy Spirit is our companion. He lives right with us so we can worship God in spirit and in truth anywhere. And mm-hmm. glory to God. Is that awesome or what? That's awesome. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. We're going to go to break here in just a second. I'm going to okay. ask one more question before break, and that's okay. this. Has there ever been a sacred text that has been and is more scrutinized, parsed, and examined than the Old Testament and the New Testament Christian Bible? Yeah, that's a good question. That's a good question. You want to answer it now? Sure. No. No? You want to wait? No. That's the answer. Oh, the answer. <laughs> no other text has been scrutinized. Who's on first? Yeah. Yeah. All right. We'll take a break. Dr. Okay. <laughs> Dr. Mark Musk is my guest. 877-933-2484. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Bill. I thought this interview was so good. I wanted you to hear it again. So Enjoy. Welcome back to the show. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest. All right, Mark, we're in the final round here. Yeah. Why don't practicing Jews still sacrifice animals to God? Yeah. Good question. It's a good question. Yeah. But the 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 quick answer to that is is that they don't have a place to do it because it was sanctioned in the temple in Jerusalem. And that was the place where... Uh, they were to do that. And now there is no temple there on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And so it is not possible. They also, if I I understand this correctly, that uh, the Jews have been able to substitute good works for these sacrifices mm. is, in, as far as uh, uh, some kind of an atonement for their sin. Thank you for that answer. Here's a question about New Age. How do you begin to talk to people that have New Age beliefs, such as believing that we are spirits and that there are spirits out there and they hear them and see them, but believe they are good? It's a little hard to say, hey, those spirits aren't on the right team. Yeah, I'm, you know, I don't think I've had a New Age question in about 20 years. It seems as though that has kind of run its course. Okay. It was a 20th century phenomenon, but you don't hear much about that today. But we can talk in general about people who say that there are good spirits out there and uh, we can listen to them and benefit from them. Uh, I... Honestly, Bill, I, I will allow people to go that direction if they want to, but there's such a very much better alternative to that, and that is to become acquainted with the Lord Jesus Christ and put our faith in him for the forgiveness of sin and peace with God, and we have 
communion with him every day that we can have confidence in. It isn't just subject to our subjective feelings, whether there's some spirit in the room or not, and to, uh, to somehow try to get in touch with this spirit. And you're exactly right to say uh, it's a, a grand uh, presupposition or assumption to make that these spirits are good. Uh, there may be good spirits, but there certainly may be evil spirits as well that want to deceive you. So why not go with something that is much more uh, tangible than uh, some perception of spirits all around you? Mm-hmm. All right, Mark, here's a question. Uh, go to First John chapter 3, 7 to 9. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And the question, uh, and it's I don't know if I understand the question correctly, but can you comment on the difference between Romans 7 and that verse? Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, it's verses 6 to 9. First John 3, 6 to 9? Yes. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. It's kind of a vague question. Well, I, I wasn't sure if it would click in your in your head or not, so I was going to throw it out there and see what would happen. Well, it's this idea that uh, I don't know. I have to speculate because I don't I, I don't know exactly what this person is asking, but uh, John is making it clear here that we are called to abide in Christ. That is the key term in First John that abide or live in Christ. Christ lives in us. We live in him. And it's, it's not some mystical union, you know, that, uh, that we, we, uh, meditate over or something like that, but it's a legal kind of a union where we are united with him. And so when we unite with him, we do what's right because it pleases him because we love him and we want to do that. And that's what John is getting at here is that, uh, we, we practice righteousness when we are in Christ and we abide in him. And so it's not that we no longer in, ever sin. John gets into that earlier in the book where he says that uh, in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But then he says, and if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So he's realistic enough to know that we don't live sinlessly perfect once we abide in Christ. But he's just trying to distinguish here that it's really a warning and an alert. If you find yourself going off into sin, it's legitimate for you to ask yourself, am I abiding in Christ? Mm-hmm. If you are uh, seeing your life changing and you're becoming more patient and you're kind and sacrificial to other people, uh, that's that's a confidence building that I'm, yeah, maybe I'm, I'm abiding in Christ here more and more as mm-hmm. I live. That seems to be the sense of what John is saying. Now, in Romans chapter 7, uh, this is a passage that gets uh, uh, interpreted uh, vigorously. A lot of discussion goes into it because Paul talks about how uh, that he uh, is, uh, he has this terrible struggle uh, with his mind versus his body or his flesh. That he wants to do the right thing, but he's uh, he's struggling against that with the way that his body wants to live, and so uh, he's he's uh, almost at the point of uh, 
of uh, despair here. Uh, let me just read a couple of verses. Romans seven twenty one. Paul says, I find then this principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. I joyfully concur with the law in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind. And so I think uh, the, 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 uh, the, the direction I take this bill is to say this realizes what every one of us realizes, that when we put our faith in the gospel and become followers of Christ, that's not the end of the battle. That's the beginning of it, because now we desire to please God with our lives, but we still are nagged by temptation that comes for us. And uh, Paul seems to be uh, acknowledging this. Uh, he says at the end of this passage in verse 24, he says, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? And he says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so uh, there is a deliverance that will come for us, but we, we're in a battle. Do I even have to say that, Bill? No. Nope, I mean, nope, any Christian that's honest with himself will realize it's a war out there yep. to do the right thing. Yeah. So, Mark, in Job chapter 1, you know, that passage about the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. song. Yeah. How, yeah, I know. I love that. How do we understand that verse? Because I think it's been used a little bit inappropriately at times. When you have some hard luck or you have something that didn't go out planned the way you planned and people say, well, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Is that the proper context of that verse? Well, I don't know if it's exactly the most helpful thing if other people are telling you that. (laughs) I agree. When everything goes bad. But this is just illustrating Job has got things lined up correctly here, that he loves God and he knows uh, God. And so these bad things happen. He realizes that he still belongs to God. He's going to bless the Lord, even if things go really bad. In chapter one, he loses all his possessions and his sons and daughters are all killed. And then in chapter two, he's got just a terrible disease. He's scraping himself with a piece of pottery. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That sounds awful, but he will not curse God like his wife suggests he should. He, He continues to believe what he knows about God. So Job passes the test. Mm -hmm. So what would you say to someone who claims the Christian faith but uh, hates some people groups because they're haters of God and they have denied Jesus? Okay, I'm not sure if I'm following the days and the thems there. Well, I get that, yeah. So Um, is there somebody who claims claims to be a Christian, now what are they doing? But they're they're mad because you you don't hate groups enough. There are some groups out there that that are haters of God. And they've denied Jesus, and somehow uh, we should be opposed to them. And that's, uh, it's crazy talk. Well, we've got to be careful there, because uh, the, the, um, we have to keep things straight as far as, is what's going on. That the, uh, I like the way Timothy uh, addresses this, uh, Paul does, in 2 Timothy 2 where uh, I think it speaks to this, maybe not haters, but being quarrelsome. Mm-hmm. Uh, in verse 24 of Second Timothy 2, Paul writes, The Lord's bondservant, you, Timothy, must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient right. when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. 
and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. So we don't hate these people, but we can interact with their ideas, but we do it in a kind, gentle uh, kind of a way uh, that there's no place for this kind of returning hate for hate. That That's uh, completely antithetical to the Christian faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just have about a minute left, Mark. In the Garden of Eden, when... The serpent was uh, tempting uh, Eve. Mm-hmm. The the serpent was only only promoting an upside. There was no downside. Well, it's a whopper of a half truth, where he's saying, "Well, first of all, he just out and out lies to Eve." Eve yeah. says, "You know, if we eat this, uh, the Lord said we'll die," and he says, "You will not die." That's a whopper. Of a <laughs> you know, yeah. It's exactly wrong. Uh-huh. But then he seduces her with the idea, uh, uh, figuratively seduces right. her, with the idea that uh, you will become like God if you do this, if you eat this fruit. And that's a whopper of a half-truth there. Mm-hmm. That's so good. Yeah, she's she'll be she'll become like God, knowing good from evil. But what comes with that? You have no idea, girl, of what this is going to do to you. It's going to destroy your innocence. So uh, there's both blatant lies and then really crafty half truths in there. Mm-hmm. All right, Mark. That's all of our time. Uh, Kim is running the board today, producing, and I, she said you were uh, one of the favorite teachers. Do you want to say anything to? Professor Mark? Oh, it's just so good to hear your voice again. I always treasured your classes, and it's great to hear you on air. Nice. Thanks, Kim. And and I got one other nice comment um, that a great program. um, I always love Dr. Mark Muska. He makes me want to study more. Isn't that beautiful? Oh, man. I hope that the Lord helps you study, too. That's who we never can learn enough. I love these questions, Bill. It tells me people are really reading to know. Awesome. Have a great day, and I will talk to you next time. Okay, thanks. You bet. That wraps up our show for the day. Thanks for spending time with me. I hope you had a wonderful day, and I appreciate you being with me. Have a great night, everyone. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.